0: I don't know if you talk to yourself or not, but my, my guess is that you do. I won't want to embarrass you by raising your hand. The only question becomes, in terms of how crazy people think you are, is when you do it. There are times, I remember the very first time that someone was using a headset. I was in the grocery store, I'll never forget it, and uh, he came walking by me chatting away and he had a suit on and I thought, wow, I've been around a lot of people who talk to themselves um, unfiltered, they just walk around talking to themselves. But never wearing that nice of a suit, it just seemed odd to me. And I kind of actually went around and followed him a little bit. And then I saw this cord dangling out of his ear. Uh, and then I thought he was Secret Service, and I got this whole scenario going. But uh, anyway, but we all talk to ourselves. We we all we all say things to ourselves. And sometimes it feels weird. But here, are some things I think that that kind of drive them out. Sometimes it's a pep talk. Like you're about to do something, and you're like, you can do this. And you're just like telling yourself this, you know, you can do this. You got this. And then sometimes it's success. Like something good happens, you're like, you go, girl. Like, you know, you're just internally saying, yeah, that was awesome. That, that, was, that was really cool. Once in a while, or sometimes it's failure that does not and it comes out this way. Like, how could you do this? You idiot! You know, and you're just like, you're in there, and you're saying things to yourself. Sometimes it's in troubles. You're facing something, and you go, how am I going to get through this? How am I possibly going to get through what's facing me right now? I want you to feel some level of comfort with that because it's actually biblical to talk to yourself. We've been talking about God as lover and this whole idea of smitten. And we're going to look at some Psalms. In fact, you could open up to Psalm 13. That's where we're going to begin this morning. In fact, if you read the Psalms all the way through, you will often hear the psalmist talking to himself. Within the song. oftentimes it starts this way. Soul. He's talking to himself. Oh soul. Sometimes it will say that. And then it will go on to say something. And it's the psalmist talking to himself. Saying things to himself. I want to take you, actually start in Psalm 3. Go over to the left a few pages. I want to read just a couple of opening snippets from what's called the Lament Psalms. The lament psalms uh, are are songs that are that are all through the scriptures, and starting in verse three, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses of several psalms to just give you kind of this this weaving pattern. I could go on literally for the rest of the service just reading l- lament psalms. There's that many, but Psalm three verses one to two. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Turn over to Psalm 13. A couple pages. Psalm 13 begins this way. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my life all the day. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Turn to Psalm 56. Psalm 56 sounds like it doesn't start on a minor chord. It sounds like maybe a little positive. It says, Be gracious to me, O God. And then it takes a turn for the south. For man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long for many attack me proudly. Psalm 102. Psalm 102. The start of Psalm 102. It says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry come to You. Do not hide Your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline Your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Last one we're going to just look at for a moment here is Psalm 142. Go near the back. Psalm 142 says this, "...with my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him." Let me just highlight some of the words I just read in the last few moments. Foes. How long? Distress. Tramples, oppresses, attack, cry out, plead, complaint, trouble. We're getting a sense of the lament psalms. We're starting to see them come into focus. Now, this sounds a lot different from a song that I used to sing growing up in church. Uh, once in a while, certain songs would trigger uh, hunger in me because we'd often sing them in our church services near the end of the service. And so when that song came along, a little bit like Pavlov's Dog, I started to think about lunch and I started to get kind of hungry for it. And one of the songs that we sang that kind of had this effect on me was this. There's a song that ends this way, and it says, And now I am happy all the day. It's talking about inviting Christ in, and and it's a good song. I don't want to pick on the song too much. But if you build a theology off of, and now I am happy all the day, then there's whole chunks of Scripture that are either completely wrong or don't apply to you in specific. And the reality is is that hard times are coming for you, Christian. It's it's the nature of following Christ. We talk about this often because it would be cruel. Football season starting, right? It would be cruel to tell some kid to go trap for football and not warn him. You're going to get pounded. You're a pipsqueak freshman. You're going to get chilled out there. So put this helmet on. Put these pads on. I saw a guy take a hit in a preseason game and as he's walking off, I've had a friend be a third string quarterback for an NFL team and I asked him one time, what does it feel like when Jim Jeffcoat during practice has hit you and is laying on you? He said it feels like you're going to die. This is a giant man with huge hands. And he said, it feels like you're going to die and this guy's walking off the field and I just thought about my friend and I thought, man, I've had the wind knocked out of me but I've never taken a hit like that. I don't know how he's feeling but somehow he's walking off. Sometimes they're walking off like this and the camera zooms in and they look like they're about ready to die. Wouldn't it be cruel to tell them, hey, join football, it's really fun, people cheer for you? I mean, that's part of the story, yes. But you're going to get hammered out there It's a battle. We just talked near the end of Ephesians about the good fight. Let me ask you this. How does, uh, how does the, how how do these prayers kind of stack up to the, uh, often polite, often perfectly reverent, often perfectly theologically correct and nice Christian prayers that we often hear in church? Or maybe in our community group, or maybe around our table. I, I tend to think if someone were to pray this way, I hope our community would would allow for and and make room for lament prayers. I have, a, I have a, a hunch that in many churches, someone starts to pray this raw, this real, with these things crying out, I think they'd be I think they'd be kind of pulled aside and corrected. Pulled aside and said, Man, that's irreverent to talk to God like that. Who are you to say, How long, O oh God, are you ever going to hear my cry? And yet here it is in the hymn book of the Bible. The people of God, their song book, it's right there for us to see. So how does a complaining, crying people highlight and glorify a good, powerful, almighty, all-knowing God? You ever wonder that? Add into the fact that that... His reputation is one as a deliverer. And here he's got a people that are complaining, crying out, crying, at times whining. And you wonder, how does that glorify God? It can be confusing. We did a series here a few years ago. I think it was in 2008. And it was a series that that we called uh, Hard to Believe. And Hard to Believe was basically looking at the astonishing invitation of Jesus and all these different things. I want to read for you just a kind of a portion of the the web write-up that we had for it. The radical teaching of Jesus didn't fit into the traditions of the religious leaders of His day. He said, You have heard that it was said, But I say unto you. Over and over again, He contradicted man-made ideas about success, significance, and even Spirituality. According to him, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. You are strong when you are weak. You have to lose to gain, give to get, empty to be filled, and die to really live. Today, these same teachings go against the grain of our ideas about success and significance and even spirituality. He dealt with the heart rather than being satisfied with outward appearances. He hung out with sinners, criticized the self-righteous, and threw the hypocrites out of the places of worship. He changed all the price tags and required that those who would follow him must put him before all other relationships, possessions, and selfish interest. Jesus was confusing, to say the least. How about the fact that when victory occurs and Jesus rises from the dead, thereby having victory over all the dark forces of the universe, every single penalty of sin is now paid for in full and even he has victory over death itself. Remember what Thomas, one of his disciples, said to him? came up and said, prove it. Some of you in this room are prove it kind of people. Some of you have been like, cool, just jumped right in. Some of you are like, I want proof. Now think for a minute about Jesus and think about what we might have done uh, in, in, in that moment about prove it. I think to show off our power. I think to show off the fact of how massive this victory really was. I think we would have done something like this. I think we would have done a victory dance. I think we would have somehow produced kind of a a gorged dragon head on the end of a spear magically to kind of represent this massive victory that had just done. I think we would have spiked the football, so to speak, in some way, shape, or form. You know what Jesus does? Remember? Prove it, Thomas says. He's just had the ultimate victory that we're still talking about. What does he do? Shows him his wounds. He shows him his wounds. We would have been all up in someone's face going, Yeah! Booyah! And all kinds of stuff. Exerting our victory. Jesus shows his wounds. It's confusing. The Hall of Fame of Faith is found in Hebrews chapter 11. It's a great read. We talk often about the heroes listed in Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11 is person after person, both men and women, both kings and the most peasant kind of person you can imagine, being mistreated, betrayed, jeered, and in the care and under the watchful eye of their God. And they walked in faith to the very end. Lest you think that only happened in Bible times. A guy by the name of Dr. Michael Sprague just came out with a, with a book And every time he would sign off on his emails, he would say this, betting the farm on God, Michael. Michael's the pastor of the church that we slept at out in uh, Louisiana, not far from New Orleans. And in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, when when I think something in the neighborhood of three-quarters of his church had to leave for economic reasons or they were dead and gone, They had to rethink ministry a little bit. And the book that he writes is called Disaster. And the subtitle, I love it. It's betting the farm on God in the midst of the storm. And he just talks about real life stories of people that lived through Katrina and how they continued to cling to their God. Not receiving in this life the things that were promised, but hoping for it in the future, walking in faith to the end. And while I was down there with my son Ethan, we heard story after story that would have just blown you away, and it built up our faith to see that. It was a modern day Hebrews 11. Just not as spectacular when it's going on in front of you. It's confusing. Let me ask you this when Stormy sees rage, how do you respond? This is a picture. This isn't us exactly, but uh, the, the company that we went river rafting with a couple of years ago on the American River um, had a CD. And we bought some pictures of us going down the rapids. It was a lot of fun. Um, and it was just such a great time to be out there with the family and kind of watching people. I've done this a couple of times, just kind of watching how people manage and handle a different difficulty. Uh, maybe you'll you'll kind of spot yourself in this. Sometimes people stand up, they don't really realize the the danger that's there. They're kind of bravado. They're like, I'm gonna surf it out, you know, and they, they stand up and kind of put on some kind of a show. Um, some guys are just yahoos, they're just kind of clueless, they're like, Woo-hoo! The next thing you know, they're they're back in the you know, paramedics just go, What happened? Uh, but they're you know grabbing on like a cowboy. Um, some just bail, right? I mean storms hit and they're like, This boat seems really insecure, surely I'm better diving in head first. To where all these boulders are that are causing the rapids, Um, his buddies are wondering what's happening there. Some some are like, "I'm still paddling," you know. They're like, "I'm totally underwater, but I'm still I'm still kicking, I'm still fighting." Um, Some people, I guess, use their buddy's head as a brace and they shove others down, you know, as they're kind of to to brace their fall. Um, I love this. So so here's a picture of of someone going through a storm and. And, and, and one guy's totally fallen out. Now, let me zoom in on the two people in front. They're having a party. They don't even have a clue. They're just like, wahoo! Hey, Jim, what do you think? Jim! You know, and they don't even know Jim's Jim's been gone for like a quarter mile back there, drowning. Um, sometimes you're in a storm where not only are you out of your boat, but your paddle is also smacking you on the side of the hip. Uh, and then sometimes you would long for the company of your boat and your paddle hitting you because you're all alone and you're upside down in the storm. Let me say this, that uh, when it comes to doubt... When it comes to struggling with your questions about God, this ought to be a place you can bring them. This should not be a place that that we don't talk about them, that we don't bring them up. I hope and pray our community groups are such that they are forming not a place where we have a, a pristine, nice bow and package on all of our theology and we just keep shuffling that around, dusting it off, making sure the corners aren't torn. I hope there are weeks you go to community group and you're the one out of the boat getting smacked by your paddle. And you don't have to just sit there and endure kind of intellectual discussion about God. Instead, you get to dive in and sense God's presence. Or you get to dive in and say, God, where are you? Why aren't you answering me? Community group, can you help me out here? Where's God in this? I hope there are tears of joy and tears of sorrow and longing and wondering where God is in our midweek groups, over the telephone, and over coffee, and in our homes. I went back and looked at a few sermons I had preached on doubt before, and two titles actually sum up where I believe the Scriptures point us to when it comes to doubt. One title is called Room for Doubt. And I believe the Bible and Jesus uh, and God, all through the Scriptures, often make this this place where there's, there's room for doubt. There's room for you to to come in and question. You know what? The lament psalms teach us just by the fact that they're there. They're not just there in one or two, kind of we'll tuck a few lament songs in. They're there in force. And the fact that they're right smack dab in the middle of your Bible and they're in abundance says this. God gives you permission to speak freely. Is God a general and all-powerful sovereign? You bet He is. Should we remember that as we address God? Absolutely. He's not your buddy, your bro, your homeboy. Don't pray like that. That's not who God is. But you know what? He's a general that, that, that looks at his subjects and he says, Come here, son. Come here, daughter. Permission to speak freely. Just, just talk to me. That's what the lament psalms are all about. That's why I'm so encouraged. People have gone before and he's allowed it. So when it comes to your doubt, here's what I would say. Don't shy away or ignore your doubt. You'll be like the person in the, in the top picture. Burying your head in the sand. Your faith will be about a half inch deep and when the storms come, you won't have anything to cling to. Because all it will do is be little platitudes that you've memorized, little sayings that you know about, little cutesy songs, but you don't have a real vibrant relationship. The second title that I found as I just kind of looked at other messages I had done was this, Confronting Your Doubt. Do you see these two in conjunction with each other? Room for Doubt and Confronting Your Doubt. In Confronting Your Doubt, the basic message was this, Doubt ultimately is an unwanted enemy and is toxic to your spiritual growth. So if you wallow in it like a pig in the mud and you go, Well, I'm just, I'm just a doubter. I'm just a doubting Thomas. I'm just going to wallow in my doubt all the time. And you never confront it. You never question and get to a point of answers. You never go do the research to say, well, I wonder about this. If you just stay at the wonder phase and never pursue beyond that, it will kill your spiritual life. Do not set up shop in doubt land. It's going to be there. Don't ignore it. Don't set up shop and wallow in it. Those are kind of the two guardrails of doubt. Let me give you kind of a short answer to some things, and then we're going to look at at a couple of lament psalms in the time we have remaining. The word evil and suffering and hurt and pain and something being wrong and fear all equal one thing. They really equal sin. Sin is what opened the door for all of those things to come flooding in. And I think the fact that we could look at this and say, yeah, things are wrong in the world indicates eternal spiritual beings that are sensing there's something wrong by the very fact that we make a decision that something's wrong, that what happened to Christian in Mexico is wrong, indicates God has set eternity in our hearts. Another way of saying sin is the word curse, and that's a biblical term and a biblical idea. Many have speculated, but where did sin come from? Why is it here? We talked last week about a beloved God, our lover, who communicates to us. He speaks to us and He spoke to this very issue. Let me give you the Cliff Notes version, okay? Here's the short, straightforward answer. A curse came on the world. It was brought on by the choice of the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. Its effect is universal, Meaning all people for all time, and not only people, but all of creation groans, Romans 8 says. It's not only universal, but its effect is deadly. The curse leads to death. Believe it or not, go watch it. Pirates of the Caribbean sums this up amazingly well. It actually puts, I don't know if they were trying to do this, but it puts this story into this amazing storyline. And I go, wow, they stole that from the Bible. That's almost like a modern day parable of the the curse. Next is that God is holy, creator, and judge. He will judge. And by judge, let me expand on that by saying correct, punish, and make all things right. When you see someone beaten such that it takes six months to recover, you want justice for that person. When 30 Americans go down in a helicopter this last week, when people get shot up over in Europe, you look at that, the whole world demands there needs to be something done about that. That is unjust and wrong. Finally, God provides remedy or rescue in the person and work of His Son Jesus Christ who is the Passover Lamb. And the Passover lamb is loaded with meaning for those of you who've read and understand the Old Testament idea of a Passover lamb, isn't it? That the judgment, that the wrath passes over us. It's not that us in our little home, it's not that us, we were so pure and righteous that God decided we didn't need judging. It's that the blood of Christ covers our doorposts, so to speak, and that the rightful wrath that should land on us passes right by and falls to the sacrificial lamb, in this case, the perfect sinless life of Jesus Christ, God in a body come to die for you and me. Now, that's the short answer. And what I know is this, sometimes truth isn't enough. When you're going through the dark night of the soul, like we just talked about, like many, many Christians before us have written about, journaled about, and sung about, even the truth, even these things that are true, even if you believe them to be true, sometimes they're not enough. You come to church and and you hear this and you believe it and you know it to be true and you go, God, but that's not enough. Right now in this season of my life, I know that to be true, but isn't there something more? Sometimes truth can actually feel like the mocking blows that the rest of life is hitting you. And somehow to hear this is only joining in with the the cacophony of sound that's coming at you from all directions. And that's where the lament psalms come in. It tells us it's okay not to recite memorized responses back to God. It's okay to pray and tell your story back to God the way that you see it. It's okay you have freedom to be theologically incorrect in your cries to God. Now I hope that we're so Bible saturated and that over time what seeps out of us, even when we're squeezed theologically correct pictures of God. I hope I'm that way in 20 years, but you know what? When I'm squeezed right now, there are sometimes things that squirt out that I go, eh, that's not really right. But in the moment, that's what came out. You know why I know this to be true? Because it's right here in the Scriptures. The psalmists are pouring out these different things. What they've done is they have blazed a trail for us to follow on a dark night. Let me have you turn back to Psalm 13. We already looked there once. But I want you to essentially learn to sing the sad songs of the Bible. I'm going to give you two very, very quick lessons. There are tons of lament psalms in the Scriptures. Job, is that a great place to go when you're hurting? Yes. Many of us have read through Job. Right? It's a hard time. I think Job's a good place to turn. It is. But so are the lament psalms in the middle of your Bible. Lesson one is Psalm 13. Psalm 13 acts a little bit as a, a prototype, if you will, for the rest of the lament psalms. And uh, what it does is it, it provides three parts. Not every psalm has these three parts, and some definitely have more. But Psalm 13 provides three parts. Listen for it. First part is protest. The second part is a petition of some kind. And it ends in praise. Let me read it for you, starting in verses uh, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? There's the protest. Verse 3, Consider and answer me, O my God. Light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy says I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. There's the petition. Now watch it turn to praise. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. As a musician, when I hear but in verse 5, you know what I hear? I hear the E resolve chord that we just played. When we just played this song, When the Tears Fall, there's a part near, uh, before the last big chorus, where you play an E chord. And the sound of it brightens the mind. The sound, of it, it's almost like someone turns the light on. And this psalm starts off, I've had questions without answers. That's what we just sang. And then there's this word, but. And it shifts to praise. But I will praise Him. It's just kind of cool to see a lament form applied to a modern day worship song. And to kind of see this corollary and say, wow, people are still, men and women are still writing lament psalms to God because we haven't been lifted from the curse yet. Now, there are various kinds of lament psalms. There's corporate lament songs. You ever cry out for our nation? You ever cry out for a group of, of believers at a church and say, God, we've sinned. We've been on the wrong path. We need to humble ourselves and come before you. You ever cry out for, for your family or for, for more than just you? That's called a corporate lament. There's also, of course, individual lament. There's laments of repentance. Psalm 51 is a great example of that. After David was brought to his senses. You are the man, David. His sin is before him. And he cries a lament psalm of repentance. Telling God that he had sinned. There's also vengeance psalms. These are where you're calling out a curse, as it were, on p- evil people doing evil things. Those are lament psalms. All of these have something in common because all of them, to my knowledge, have a change in that music chord. All of them have this, this shift somewhere in it. It often says but in there or it says still. All these things are going wrong. Where are you? I'm calling you out. And then it will say, but still, or still, or you, Lord. And it will shift. It's like looking your eyes to the Lord all of a sudden. And there's kind of this this turn. You know what that tells me is that the biggest need that you have in your darkest hour is to see God. The biggest need that you have in your darkest moment is to worship, is to see God. This goes against the grain of what I think most of us feel. You know what I think is 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 common to us? My biggest need in my darkest hour is what? To get me out of my darkest hour. So if that's to take this pain away, if that's to rejoin this relationship, if that's to have me somehow undo what I've done, if that's to have uh, last week's catastrophe not happen... If it's financial, to give me money, to lift me out, that's what I think my greatest need is. And that's what I think most of us struggle with thinking our greatest need is. When over and over again the Bible communicates this truth, your greatest need, hear this, do you hear me saying this over and over, in your darkest hour is to see God. There there is nothing like seeing the grandeur, glory, glory, goodness of God and what that does to perspective on your current situation. I was all up in an emotional way yesterday. I had basically, ever ha- feel like you've had it with your kids? You're not up to here. You're the guy in the boat where the, the, the depth is way up there. You're underwater with them. And in that moment I said and did things that about an hour and a half later I was repenting for to my kids because about 40 minutes earlier I had been repenting to God and saying, God, I'm sorry. God, what I did was not right. In the heat of that moment things seemed this large and in a whisper I was able to back up lift my eyes to the heavens, and God revealed himself to me in such a way that made the things that I was so worked up over tiny little dust specks. And I thought, what a knucklehead. Why did I think that was so huge? I know that you know what I'm talking about. I don't even have to guess. Now, that was was the darkest moment of my week. I'll say that flat out. It was followed by an incredible conversation last night and an incredible time of tucking in last night where the gospel of Jesus Christ was applied to our home and life emerged from that. And we get to worship as a family this morning joyfully, guilt-free, grateful in a deep way for the mercies of God in our life. Who of us could stand? But being able to see God in all His glory is what we need. Isaiah said it this way. Isaiah saw God. By the way, Isaiah was a pretty righteous prophet. He's pretty up there. You know what he does when he comes face to face with God? Remember what he says? First he says this Woe is me. And in in essence, he says, Wow is God, right? Woe is me, wow is God. When you come face to face with the Creator God, what you see is this it gives a picture of yourself and where you are. And it gives a picture of God. And it, your, your circumstances don't change one iota, but your perspective and your heart and your outlook and your attitudes from there on forth change completely. Jars of Clay wrote a song, These Ordinary Days, and the chorus of it, I love it, says this, I don't know where, I don't know how, I don't know why, but your love can make these things better. Jars of Clay is an honest band, and through the history of their their uh, repertoire. There are lots of lament-questioning kinds of songs in there. And then it will resolve to a chorus like that. And it's so encouraging. Flip over to Psalm 42. We're going to look briefly at Psalm 42 and 43. And these are really kind of a conjoined psalm. There's no heading really in the original manuscript for 43. Remember the chapters were put in at a later time. May have been one psalm. I want you to look for this repeated phrase. It's found in verse 5 verse 11 of 42 and forty-three, five, and you're going to just hear this little drumbeat, this little E chord, so to speak, over and over through this refrain. So just, just listen to it. Verse 1 of 42, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Stop for a minute. Ever seen that stitched into something, painted on a plate, in a card? I have. Many times. Here's what's fascinating. Context in interpreting Scripture is always massive, right? When I read just those two lines, I could read that and think it's a very positive Psalm. I could think, wow, yeah, that's me. It's just, it's a person that's just, you know, right in the depths with God. And they're just longing for Him all the more. They can't wait to be in places of worship. But the context of this song actually brings out the depth of it. Brings out the meaning of it. This is being sung in the midst of turmoil. Let's read on. Verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. While they are saying all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. He's remembering the past. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He's looking back, saying, I remember the good times. I remember when church to me was celebrative and bright and happy. Verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? He's talking to himself. And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall praise Him again, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep, at the roar of your waterfalls, all the breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me! Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 42 and 43. He's finding discouragement, sources of discouragement in his own thoughts, in his own mind, in those of his enemies, and even with God Himself. It's amazingly powerful to read side by side in Scripture both complaint and trust. The opposite of complaint isn't, isn't not trust. It's, it's unbelief. It's something totally different. And I read in this psalm that complaint and lament and crying can live side by side with trust and calling out and clinging to God even in the midst of hardship and trial. I want to just give you kind of a sentence sermon for a minute and let you chew on it. Our victory is veiled. Our victory is veiled. Let me, let me read a passage of Scripture while you think on that for a second. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 says this, "...who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. There it is. There's, there's the snapshot of of why things are the way they are. It's in all these things. This laundry list of what we would call dirty laundry, danger and sword and persecution and famine and rejection. And it's in all these things that we're more than conquerors. Do you see why the victory is veiled? It's a truth statement. God's deepest work is to conquer and to take us along with Him. And on the way, there are lighter afflictions. And they're momentary. They don't feel momentary at the time, but they're momentary. Last night, after just God did a restoration work and allowed grace and forgiveness to apply, we were enjoying a beautiful summer evening, me and two boys, and we were reading the scriptures. And I think it was in Matthew 19 that we were reading. And the disciples are there with Jesus. And Jesus tells them this, you're going to rule... You're each going to rule, talking to the disciples. Here they were, confused, questioning, wondering what's going on. And Jesus, I can only imagine, is like a dad that can see down the road of what's coming. And he just gives them this little sliver of hint. And because I knew what was being talked about today, I thought, wow, that just, I asked my boys, what leapt off the page to you? For me, that of the whole chapter, that leapt off the page to me. Because these humble fishermen, these mostly uneducated, unpowerful, seemingly weaklings, were more than conquerors. And Jesus could see it. So he just let them know, you're going to rule. You guys are rulers. It's an amazing thought. God ordains and never wastes the gift of pain in our lives. And I did say the gift of pain. Those who feel no pain, by the way, are lepers. It is the worst of worst diseases to not feel pain. And in the same way I opened with the emperor moth and the struggle that comes, we have to just believe and cling to the fact that God knows what He's doing and He won't allow beyond what we're able to in this moment. And that He will richly provide all that we need for life and godliness in this season. Write down Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. Finally, God causes pain so that we would not rely on ourselves. Write down another verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. That whole section is talking about that. You can just write these. We're not going to read them. Philippians 1, 29 and 2 Corinthians 1, 9. That God causes us not to rely on ourselves and that's part of what happens in pain. It shows our need. It shows our reliance on God. Isn't it amazing that Revelation, in fact, turn to Revelation chapter 5. We'll wrap up with this. That Revelation paints a picture of Christ as a lamb. I don't know if you've been to the petting zoo lately with small children, but you know what you do at the petting zoo with small children? You let them be around the lambs. You know why? They're the most vulnerable and easygoing creatures. I'm not afraid of them attacking my kids. They don't seem powerful in the slightest to me. The only thing that might happen is you suffocate in their wool if they sit on you or something. But other than that, they're harmless. So I let my children around the lambs. That's our conquering king. The lamb of God. We're about to read that not only was it a lamb that's pictured, but a lamb that's slain. And I don't know what's more pitiful and less threatening in a way than a maimed, slain animal. And a lamb at that. And yet this is the veiled victory, the veiled picture that's there. Revelation chapter 5 is John banished to an island and receiving a vision, receiving a revelation, and it's forward-looking. Verse 6 says this, "...and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth." And He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is a glorious picture of worship. That is a passage you need to read in your dark hour. The cross is the ultimate picture of victory dressed up as defeat. It looks like the darkest day and it's really the best day that we still celebrate. The cross also is a perfect example of complaint and total trust in the same moment. Remember what Jesus cries out from the cross? My God! My God! Finish it for me. Why have you forsaken me? You know what he's doing? Catch this. He's singing from the hymn book of the the people of God. That's Psalm 22. He's just quoting a song of lament. He's crying out to God, Why have you forsaken me? And then what does he say later on? It is finished. He was faithful to the end, praise God. Complaint and trust can commingle. Don't let the enemy come and tell you different. And don't stay there. Don't wallow in it. But it's a part of life and it's by God's own design. I want to invite the band up and we're going to take up our offering, close in song, and, um, and continue in worship. And as we do, I want to finish the passage I started earlier in Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor, de- nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're taking notes, you can write these things down. They're not going to be on the screen, but just write them quick. One is to this. Just rest knowing that you're in God's hands and care. Just write the word Rest. If you're in a dark night right now, what would it mean to you just to rest in that one that we just saw on the throne? And to understand He's worthy to open the scroll. He's worthy to receive all glory and power and honor and dominion. And He's got you in His hands. Second thing is to reassure your soul. Talk to yourself. I am telling you from the pulpit. Talk to yourself. It's biblical. Reassure your soul that not even death separates you from the love of Christ, which is in uh, from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And finally, remember that the victory is veiled. And if God wasn't confusing, catch this: if God wasn't confusing, it means that He'd be on your level. Do you know what that would mean? It would mean that He's a God created in your image, and He'd be a false God, a God that you understood completely is not a God to fall down and worship and trust with your future, is it? That's a God in your own making. The very fact that you're confused by God and don't understand God is an indication that God is holy, a subject we'll look at in a few weeks, totally separate, totally set apart from who you are. Let me pray. Father, thank you for music. Thank You for the truth of Your Word. Thank You for truth statements. Thank You for doctrine. God, thank You for the community of believers that are here and gathered and the examples that I get to see on a weekly basis of Your people loving on Your people, of people who have been comforted by You and thereby are able to comfort others who are in need in the same way that they have received comfort from You. God, my prayers for those who in this very hour are in desperate need of hearing from you. Lord, we cry out on their behalf and we pray that they would cry this out as well. How long? How long will you be silent? Where are you, God? Why aren't you coming through like I think that you should? Father, in this yearning, in this deep reaching out for you, I pray that authentic relationship would grow. That a deepening, strengthening faith would be built through this, God. Would You allow it so that no pain in this room is being wasted in this day? And God, would You keep before us a vision of the cross? Would You keep before us the ability to trust in the midst of our complaining and to hold on to that day when we're going to reign and rule alongside You? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.